Hello and welcome to 20 Minute Tips, a podcast for the behavioral health workforce by the Mid-America Addiction and Mental Health Technology Transfer Centers. My name is Bree Sherry with Mid-America ATTC. And my name is James Glenn, the co-director of the Mid-America ATTC. Welcome. Today's topic is navigating the current climate, race and COVID in the workplace. COVID-19 has further brought to light racial disparities in the United States. We also recognize that black communities in our country are hurting as a result of the violence, bigotry, and racism. Because of this, we wanted to have an open conversation about how to have a conversation about race in the workplace. So our first guest today is Marla Smith from Heartland Family Service in Iowa. Hi. And we have Vlad Saint from Truman Medical Centers in Kansas City, Missouri. Hello, glad to be here. Yeah, thanks uh, to both of you for joining us today. And before we get into the discussion, why don't each of you introduce yourself? So Marla, well, let's start with you today. Okay. My name is Marla Smith. And as she said before, I am from Heartland Family Service. Um, Heartland Family Service is actually located, um, we actually have 15, more than 15 locations across East Central Nebraska and Southwest Iowa. And we are really committed to building a culture that is diverse and values diversity um, in addition to creating a trauma-informed environment. Um, we serve families from birth all the way up to um, senior citizen age. And so we serve about over 50,000 individuals a year. I came to Heartland Family Service in July of 2017, so I'm very close to my three-year mark. And what I currently do is I train other organizations in de-escalation and behavior and other topics in the behavioral health field. Um, I train throughout Southwest Iowa and um, while also providing some coaching and mentoring to staff in group homes working with clients who have complex needs. So I have a lot of experience in talking with and having these types of uncomfortable conversations and how to navigate that. Perfect. Well, welcome. Glad to have you. Yeah, we're glad you're here today. Happy to be here. Yeah. Vlad, would you like to introduce yourself? I sure will. Um, so again, my name is Vladimir Saint, or Vlad the Short. I am a team leader in the Futures Community Program at TMC Behavioral Health. Um, we serve youth, families, and young adults from 3 to 25. We offer therapy in, uh, in office or in the community services, music therapy, psychiatric services, occupational therapy, nurse case management, and case management services. Um, in regards to my background, I obtained my master's degree in, um, at UMKC School of Social Work. Um, I have been in the child welfare world now since 2010, but they always tell you to count your years of practicum, so really 2008 to 2009. Um, it's been a very humbling experience thus far. At, currently at, at Truman as a team leader, I supervise a team about six, seven recovery coaches. Um, and I really love the work that we're doing in our department. Um, what's unique and what one of our, one things I value about my department is that um, it's highly and wildly diverse. Um, my supervisor is a black woman and this is actually my first time in this field that I've had a black supervisor. So it hmm. is a humbling experience for me. Um, to be under her leadership. Um, and we do 
love enriching our culture here at uh, Teachers Community and at Truman. So it, it is beautiful to be part of that process. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to have you too, Vlad. So in full disclosure, some people may know that's listening to this. So not only am I the ATTC co-director, but I'm also the associate administrator um, and business strategist at Truman and had the pleasure to work with Vlad for a long time. Um, and I, I think just to get started, one of the questions that I just want to throw out there, because I think a lot of people that are maybe sitting in positions similar to mine that are white, that have kind of positions of leadership, that also have, you know, platforms for influence, you know, they're looking for advice and they don't always have people to go around and ask for that advice that are um, people of color and with such experience as the two of you. I mean, what advice would you give uh, to somebody like myself, just to be frank? Mm -hmm. um, um, as we're going through not just COVID, which we were already starting to talk about, like, like, like we mentioned earlier, the disparities that were starting to come up with that. But obviously, um, given George Floyd's death and, and what's gone on since um, and all the discussion since, what advice would you give us, um, somebody sitting in, in, in my shoes? Okay. And Vlad, do you want to you tackle that first? Yes, sure. Um, very good question. So my advice is, uh, I would first reframe and I would ask you or other white behavioral health leaders um, to consider how have you demonstrated your ability to let them know that you support them. And when I say them, I'm talking about um, the BIPOC workforce, which is black and uh, endogenous uh, people of color. So mm -hmm. the community that I belong to um, at, at Truman. So when I say engage, right? So are, how are we being present? Um, how, are, how are you listening? Um, this experience in every, um, every person, every black person's experience is different. My experience is going to be vastly different than Marla's than any other um, black employee at Truman as well. So how, as a leader, are we sitting down and understanding that and, and asking, how can I support? What can I do in this moment for you? Um, I would also ask leaders to consider what ways they have taken feedback to leverage change as a leader um, in roles we are not in. Um, there's a difference between if I sit down with you, James, and we have a conversation, um, and you go back to senior leaders and bring it back up compared to if I do, because you have that prestige and, and, and that privilege. So how are leaders taking that feedback and bringing it back to to in incorporate different cultures or different policies. Um, I would also mention to seek to understand, expanding awareness by welcoming dialogue within the work environment. There's a really awesome quote that I recently came across is that um, and it says, one who refuses to learn, no one can help. Um, one who seeks knowledge um, becomes empowered. So I would really incorporate, or not incorporate, but encourage leaders to really absorb as much information as, as as they can find literature that um, understands bl um, black lives and people of color. Um, formulating what I like to call a new course of action in the workplace is highly recommendable to me. And what that's, that looks like is sitting down again with like a diverse group of people and making sure that when I make decisions, who are the other key people in a room with me that may not look like me because their opinions, their feedback matters a lot. Um, there's a block for me specifically as I don't want to come across as incompetent. So I don't always feel as if I can make a change and speak my mind in some spaces because that adds to my emotional labor. 
So if white leaders saw feedback from the BIPOC staff and community, clients, vendors, and drove decisions making, making based off those feedback, uh, we would be in a better and healthier situation. I know we've had private conversations, Vlad, with it's a couple of people that I'm fortunate to be mentored by at the organization, <laughs> and you being one of them, seriously. And um, one of the things that did stand out to me, that reading part as a leader, particularly, you know, not a lot of people have even read the Ferguson report. And that was one of the recommendations, if you remember that group, yeah. um, was to read the Ferguson report and to really look at um, different type of um, more diverse kind of um, writings and books by mm -hmm. leaders that are of color and start influencing thinking that way. And I, I will tell you that's been helpful. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that again mm -hmm. because I got that advice before this call and that has continued to be helpful. Um, and I think that's somebody that's listening to this could take away. So tomorrow I didn't want to jump in there, but I did want to emphasize that. So, so tell me your thoughts on that question. Yeah, um, I was going to say I absolutely agree with Vlad. Um, a lot of it has to do with listening and listening for understanding and not listening to respond. It's, it's difficult to be able to open up in a professional setting because this is our work. This is how we make our money and our livelihood. And so we are expected to you know, always perform at peak performance, even though inside we may not be okay. So it's listening for understanding and giving us that space and that time to really process through our feelings without saying, well, they said they were okay, but um, you know, really recognizing that we may not actually be okay. Um, you know, as a supervisor, you know, thinking about the opportunities, what opportunities have you provided to your staff for that professional and personal growth? Are, you, are they expected to do that on, during their business hours mm -hmm. or is it on their personal time? Do you allow time during business hours, during their work hours to actually go and maybe attend an event on some other, on a different culture? And although we're talking about race, you know, there are other religions, there's, you know, different sexualities and that all ties in together. You know, how are you providing that professional development for your staff and how are you supporting that and encouraging, encouraging them to, to attend those things? The other thing that you can do um, is really recognizing how um, and becoming a more trauma-informed workplace and looking mm -hmm. at your policies and your procedures and are they inclusive? Are they trauma-informed? And if you're not sure, that's probably a blind spot. So maybe you need to talk with your staff and bring them together and um, talk about what they might see as a blind spot, not just your executive team, but maybe... Yeah you know, your, even just your hourly staff, because they will be able to spot a blind spot faster than somebody who's creating it. And they'll tell yeah. you, this is a blind spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, That's so really becoming more inclusive and including everybody in these decisions. And then again, looking at the diversity of your staff, what does that look like? The more diverse your staff is, even if it's somebody that constantly has an opposite opinion of yours, that's where the growth happens because they're probably bringing up something that's very uncomfortable to you and growth is what happens outside your comfort zone. Yeah. I would say that, you know, if you're uncomfortable with taking with having uncomfortable situations, you better get comfortable with them or conversations. You better get comfortable with them real quickly. Cause that's, that's, you know, we're all having those. And I think particularly in behavioral health and addictions, this is an overdue conversation. We've been one, I mean, for all of America, I'm sure it is, but, Mm -hmm. You know, we, particularly at Truman, one of the things I always say is, 
you know, we serve a disproportionately high number of individuals that are um, black and frankly, you know, in poverty. And so we need to have more open conversations like this. And I really welcome this, which is why I appreciate both of you being on here. And I like what you said about the policies and procedures, Marla, particularly because this is a time because of COVID, we're looking at policies and procedures anyway. Yeah. So if we're going to look at redoing them, the timing couldn't be better in terms of making them current and, and using your guys' advice to include more than just the leadership team. I think that's, that's a really good, big takeaway for us. So besides leadership, what are kind of some of the other ways that the behavioral health and addiction field can demonstrate that they're supporting equality and equity? Like what actions, specific actions do you guys have for recommending, you know, that those fields started start tackling those issues? And maybe Marla, we'll go back to you. Yeah. Um, I think the one of the most important things is to keep the conversation going because it's very easy to only respond on events based versus this is something that's chronic. So thinking of it as acute and chronic. Um, so what can you put together that can continue that can continue to keep the conversation going at Heartland Family Service? We have what's called employee resource groups or ERGs and each ERG is actually focused on a different area um, that would be important to staff's lives. So we have ERGs that are working with families um, of, of people who are serving in the military. And um, how do you balance work family life, professional development, physical well-being, overall health. Um, right now, our leaders in culture ERG is the one who's taking more of a, um, a prominent role with the support of the other ERGs because culture, we, we're talking about race, this is something that's very, very, that's, that's culturally sensitive. And so they're taking more of a, an important stance, a leadership role, and how do we have those conversations and creating those safe spaces so that staff can come and have a safe person to talk to because we have this ERG. Each ERG is actually sponsored by somebody who is in, the executive administration. So mm -hmm. it may be somebody who is the ethics compliance officer or um, one of the executive assistants or, or something like that, because then they are able to take that back to their, our leadership team and that change can start from the top down. So it is a constant conversation. Um, and each ERG is actually in support of each other. Mm -hmm. um, so we may have a a dual event where we're working with our LGBTQ plus ERG and our physical health ERG, our wellness work mm. ERG, to where it's banded together because we are all integrated into one. And that's how we keep that conversation going. So if you want, and this way it also gives other employees an opportunity to come and say, hey, I know you're in this group. This is what I'm seeing. Is this something that we can do? And they can take it back to the ERG and they can make an event out of it. They can make a training out of it. Um, they can get that awareness out. But that conversation is always constantly going. So keeping yeah, like that, that conversation going, um, that is the, the biggest way that you can show that you support that equality and equity. Don't take it as an event. Take it as this is something we're going to do. This is now our policy and procedure. That's good. And that also, I like what you're saying about it almost decentralizes it from leadership to show that they have more of a supportive role as, as opposed to an active role and, and puts it, diversifies it within the organization. I really like that a lot. Vlad, what about you? Same kind of question. Like, what are some other ways in, in our field, behavioral health and addictions, that we can demonstrate supporting equity and equality? 
I, I kind of want to piggyback off of Marla when she mentioned that keeping the conversation going because mm -hmm. I, I'll be honest, I have a legit fear that this will lose mm -hmm. steam and within two months we will stop talking about this and it is equivalent to brushing your teeth every day it, it just mm. has to, it has to be routine it has to be practice um so as a leader of an organization of just letting your employees know how can i support you um, and as i mentioned earlier every black experience is different and part of the change comes from that understanding and not overgeneralizing. so again educating ourselves um, having that compassion and exposure and when i mean exposure i would love for um, organizations to really cultivate a culture where for cultural humility trainings or any forms of trainings they bring in outside agencies or resources more dni or rni instead of going on relias and taking mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah. I, am, I am more i am more engaged if i'm sitting down with people who are like filling my cup up with knowledge compared to if i'm just logging on relias and taking a quick um survey or a quick test so there that i think needs to change as far as policy because it's the test that we have to take should not just be something simplistic it should be involved and it should be um mm -hmm. naturally connecting because d and i work just our path to enrich cultural humility humility is going to require more movement than again sitting in front of a computer so i would and i know if, um physically this is like work i'm, I'm doing with you james of, of understanding the economics right. <laughs> i know uh, money is always a, um, always a factor but if there is a way and if an organization is committed then i i challenge by saying why not right like why not make it part of the culture um and another recommendation i would give is creating more town halls kind of going back to my fear mm. town halls should be something that happens once a month in regards to this topic because allowing people um, specifically uh, uh, people from the BIPOC community that safe space is paramount to again creating a safe environment um, I know that one of the things that my supervisor and um, some others were trying to create a group um, leading the beauty of leading of color um, creating a safe space where uh, people in the BIPOC community could come together and mentor each other and elevate I, I the idea behind that sounds so fantastic to me. So I would love to see that come into fruition and, and take full steam. And I know that there's things that have to go in place to make it happen. And I also challenge the question of, in different organizations, it, why put up barriers in a sense? Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if, if, if your people, if your staff, your workforce are asking for those safe spaces to not make it rigid, to find a way to make it a process than saying mm, I have to go back there there might be some taboos with that because that's dismissing our experience and our need because we're asking for it um, another big thing I was thinking about too um, is donating to black owned businesses or changing mm -hmm. food delivery systems I know that companies have meetings and they cater out awesome so why not find a black owned catering business to support um, and I'm not trying to say to this has to be the end all be all, but right. that's something different. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, that's really the question, right? Is, is how are we practicing what we preach, right? Can't exactly. just talk about it the whole time. So, so you're moving more into that, that, that action. And I think that kind of relates to Bree's next question. Sure. So I'm kind of curious about, and like James said, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but 
um, what are some ways that we can create safe spaces to continue these conversations? Because like we're talking, if we don't have these conversations, there, there won't be any action. If action is what we want. So what are some ways to create these um, safe spaces to continue these conversations? Um, well, I would say that, again, it goes back to that active listening, you know, listening for understanding and not to respond. And but also being aware of your own defensiveness, because we don't want to get caught up in that defensive cycle. If you're working with somebody who is of, of, a, of a different race than you, and they're actually expressing the things that are happening to them and sharing their experiences, it's natural to feel defensive, mm -hmm. um, because that's our own human nature, and think, I'm not like that. And it's not about you. So really, check yourself and and check for your own defensiveness and listen for that understanding and understand that although you may not be able to understand all of our experiences, um, you may not even be able to relate to any of these experiences because it may be so far outside of your, your comfort zone and your thought process that it just seems so far out there that you can't comprehend it. And it's okay to say that, um, you know, and really, you know, educating yourself um, learning more about those implicit and explicit biases mm -hmm. and learning about microaggressions, um, helping them distinguish between emotional and physical safety. And also, um, again, I'm going back to yourself, recognizing that although you may be able to create a safe space, if you're working in a therapeutic environment, you may not be a safe person for that person to talk to. Um, they may not disclose as much because they may not feel that you are a person that they can feel safe disclosing that to. So helping them recognize who in their life is that safe person that they can express those feelings with to help them process through that feeling. Um, and really, you know, as people are expressing their, themselves, don't debate their feelings because that completely minimizes what they're feeling and minimizes mm -hmm. their relate their, their, that relationship. And that's mm -hmm. the fastest way to actually stop that conversation. So really, it's a lot about that self-reflection and helping yourself thinking, helping yourself become a safe person. And if you're not a safe person, how can thinking about different ways that you can make your space safer for them and including more people from other, other um, areas? Maybe it's a natural support and helping them with that. Marla, that's so good about don't debate your feelings, because I think a lot of people, especially if you're new into this field, you don't, that, that comes with seasoned you know, kind of uncomfortable conversations and becoming more seasoned in your field. So one of the big takeaways when you say that, I love that you said that, is you need some time to practice that. You need to be able to be in silence to just listen and not always feel like you have to fix somebody's emotions or that you always have to jump in, especially in our field, because we think that's part of our, you know, kind of calling, right? So right. get a little dangerous in this because it is a different reaction. So I love that you said that don't debate their feelings. Because that really does, it, it comes across dehumanizing, particularly is what I've heard. Um, it is. And that's, it's the opposite effect of what we're trying to, what we're trying to have. Vlad, what about you with, with Bree's question? So I, I like this question. And initially, when I first read it, I instantly thought about writing a treatment plan. And I was processing that. And so basically, the idea, right, like, when we write a treatment plan, it's not ours, it's for the client. And an effective treatment plan um, navigates the course of treatment. And the only way for that to occur is if the client has an investment buy-in, right? They are part of that, 
step process. So in my mind, if someone asks me, how can I create a safe place? Ask me, right? Like um, it should be, I, give me the power to create my own safe place. Um, give me the power to have that autonomy. Give me the power to um, well within my, my, my rubble, my scope to do what I need to, to, to know that I am supported. Um, Cause you can't do it for me. This is not right. This is not your experience in that sense. So what can you give to me so I can feel like I'm empowered? Um, Cause there is a difference between safe versus brave space. And if we are totally, we're really going to move through the conversation. Um, we need to be uncomfortable. That's just part of it. Um, the uncomfortability piece sparks growth and it sparks the, the drive we yeah. will need to move forward. Right. Cause we step outside of our comfort zone. That's how we do things different. Um, so many times I hear that white people are so afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, they sometimes choose not to say anything at all. And there is a, a recent um, mindset that I am adapting of silence is compliance. So not saying anything is worse than saying something to begin with. Because um, mistakes happen. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. Um, one of my favorite social workers, Brene, um, Brene Brown always mm -hmm. talks about that when we come in this world, we're hardwired for failure. We are designed to fall. It's the, the important thing is, is how do we get back up and learn from that so we don't do it again, in a sense. So we need to lean into discomfort. Um, and and Marla said this too, and I want to touch base uh, back on it, but don't push back when someone from the BIPOC community acknowledges something that was said that may have felt hurtful. Um, we were actually in a meeting this morning, James, at the 9.30 meeting, and um, one of our, Aaron mentioned something about how a uh, BIPOC um, community member um, addressed something that he said. And there was a certain level of humility on his piece of being a yeah. white man and, and saying, okay, I'm sorry, I, I did not know that, and I will do better, compared to, well, why is that a problem? So have that open space and it's okay we're going to make mistakes through this but we're going to get better that's just part of the movement um because the impact matters even if it wasn't the intention well i think that's good and humility is such a good word i mean i can tell you the you know just from circles um, that i run in i think vlad that and I've, i think i've told you this that you know i've actually been coached by some of my peers that, uh, when you are in a position of leadership it can be scary to have these conversations because of fear of lawsuit and fear of litigation, fear of showing ignorance and fear of, you know, it's, it's all that fear-based thinking. And what, what I really feel promised about continuing conversations is that fear is not just on, it's, is not just on black people or people um, of different, um, you know, races. It is, it's this collective fear that honestly oh, yeah. we've been feeling mm -hmm. similar to COVID, right? I mean, everybody's got this, common trauma now and so how do we use that to get out of that story we're telling ourselves while that may have been true even in the past maybe it's just a, a different opportunity to be able to do that and so so there is interesting to hear the stories we've told ourselves and handed down and, and I think what you're saying with that humility is be okay to be you know to be wrong and and us to be able to continue the conversation 
let's both be kind of humble about learning from this experience. So I, I love that. I love that you highlighted that. I really do. Um, let me just, I know we're running short on time, but I want to make sure that I get this in here. Um, COVID, you know, obviously was highlighting these disparities in our healthcare system before George Floyd died. And in one of the things that we, you know, frankly, when we were planning this, um, we were talking, wanting to talk about and get your guys' perspective on some of the innovations, um, particularly that has come out of this, um, really this whole climate the world's in right now, right? So I know both of you are pretty creative. Um, so maybe just give one or two minutes on kind of that creativity and what some positives maybe that you've seen that you could share with the audience that kind of plant seeds for people to do things differently. Like if we just talk about it and we don't do things differently, we're getting nowhere. So Maybe Vlad, I'll throw it back to you and then pop back over to Marla. I'm okay. just highlighting some good things that have that have started to come from this. Sure. Um, some of the good things that came from COVID and for us, telehealth obviously huge, right? Um, Zoom sessions. I know there's a thing as as far as Zoom fatigue, but that virtual form of connection has been vital for um, establishing um, ongoing support for our staff, even with our staff and our, our clients, but as well as uh, continuation of our staff. Um, utilization of Kindles, um, that has helped tremendously and we were very fortunate to, to receive those. Um, and I will give a quick story of, I had a recovery coach who was unable to connect with one of his, um, one of his clients because they're younger and the only, the only way for him to connect with his client was that the parent was home um, because the parent had the cell phone. So uh, providing that family with a Kindle gave that recovery coach another uh, avenue to connect with their client. Um, more uncomfortable conversations, again, opportunities to discuss cultural uh, unity on platforms such as this. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how much of these are, are happening. Um, learning new skills, life changes. We have uh, staff who have discovered a love of planting, of pottery, and painting, um, building genuine relationships, again, connecting more with people via Zoom. And my big thing, and I'll, I'll stop it here, but um, more time to slow down. I am not one to sit around. I, if I'm on a vacation, I'm doing something. I, I cannot sit still. But however, COVID has created this environment, this reality where, where slowing down is okay, which is bonkers. But uh, that's something that I've seen come out of this. So uh, just something I need to do more of. But Yeah, don't we all? But that's good. I mean, I think it is forcing us to think through that and how important that is. Marla, what about you? Um, wow, Vlad, you pretty much took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> um, one thing that I have noticed as well is there's been a lot more transparency. I've had more people coming up to me and saying, I, I thought I knew, but I don't know. Um, do you have time to talk about this? And so there's a lot more transparency, and that comes from a lot more opportunities to do that self-reflection. Because as you said, Vlad, COVID forced us to... <laughs> It, it it didn't even force us to really slow down. It almost forced us to a complete stop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it it allowed people to uh, start thinking. You know, what am I doing? Do I really need to do all of this? Mm -hmm. And so, because of that, we're able to focus on the things that are actually more important for us, and yeah. and important to us, and start having that growth and allowing that that creativity and saying this is and, and reaffirming our values. Um, because we get so bogged down in the day-to-day -day that sometimes we just barely have time to think. So it, you know, it forced us to truly slow down. So that's what, I, that's what I've noticed is that there's been more transparency, more people saying, I don't know. I need to go and find this out. 
And again, you know, having that, that agency support and being able to have more time to read and educate myself and educate others, um, that truly has been invaluable as well. So great. Well, should we each um, share our two favorite takeaways from today's conversation? I think that would be great. Why don't we go to one of your takeaways, Vlad, since Marla just talked, and then we'll move from that. It just came from Marla, which is, I love that active listening piece. Like, I know I understand active listening, but the way you said it was beautiful, and I, I had to write down the experience and sharing that experience um, and check on the defensiveness. You know, I, that is so profound to me because there are a lot of times I, I don't do it myself of if I'm going into conversation of making sure when someone says something to me, how am I going to react to this? And it's hard to like, and start to like gauge that beforehand, right? I'm not, I wish I was a telepath, but <laughs> but it, it's more of like, what are my insecurities? And, and specifically with all the things that are going on right now, I have to check my micro, my, my own microaggression, um, my own anger, and my own frustration. Um, I think I was telling James of, you know, right now it's hard for me to keep a certain level of decorum and not mm -hmm. <laughs> go rally or, or do something. I have to find another way um, to assist at this time. And this is my way. But yeah, I really like that. For me, it was, and even though I know this and I do this on an everyday basis, um, what you said, Vlad, was just asking. Ask, how do I create this, safe, this space safe for you? Um, because we get so, you know, like, okay, I learned this, I learned that, I learned this. Um, sometimes you do forget that you can give out all the suggestions in the world and it doesn't mean a thing to that person. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so, you know, that was a good reminder for me is it's okay to ask and to ask that uncomfortable question. And then they can make that choice as to what works for them and how they can, you know, walk through that door that I've just opened for them. That's really good. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of coaching um, in, my, in my coaching business around the inquiry approach versus the advocacy approach. And, you know, just asking permissions and asking how people are feeling and, and their input is getting us further than sometimes our, you know, strong, go at it hard advocacy approach because it's demonstrating the respect that we all want to be, want, want to see in the world. So I love that, Marla. My, my big takeaway, I'd say, I, I also have a page of notes, but, um, you know, I think when Vlad mentioned keep the conversation going, I was thinking a lot about my role in that and influencing the workforce. And um, I think when we had our prep call, one of the things that Bill said on this on the call was, you know, that we keep trying to teach cultural competent cultural competency and cultural sensitivity when we really need to experience it. And this is our chance to experience it and and really create ways that we are not just um, trying to teach it in a Relias training or a two hour session like, like you were talking about, but really have more opportunities for people to experience it and to be surrounded with more diverse thinking. Um, and I like the analogy of the treatment plan for sure too. Um, so I think for our, our audience, that'll, that'll be really important. It couples with the trauma-informed stuff that you were talking about, Marla, and really you know my responsibility to at this time look at policies and procedures anyway, and how can I look at that differently? And I think those are the big takeaways for me from this conversation. So thank you for, for helping shape that. What about you, Bree? Sure, really quick. Um, I, uh, on an individual level, I um, want to do better about seeking knowledge to become more empowered. And then on an organizational level, um, 
I um, underlined to look at the di diversity in your staff and, and make sure you're including everyone in the decision. Marlon, Vlad, I just want to thank you for volunteering your time and um, for giving us some opportunities and ways to do better. So we appreciate the conversation today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really do appreciate both your time. I, I mean, I think it's meaningful. Every time I have this conversation, I'm learning something new. And I just think you both are very articulate and, um, and really I, bravo on the courage to, to have this conversation. Uh, particularly Marla, you know, being in Nebraska and stuff and brought in Vlad and I get to talk this way sometimes. So really yeah. appreciate you guys spending time um, sharing your experience. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. Yes. And thank you to our listeners. Um, this project is brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction and Mental Health Technology Transfer Centers, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of 20-Minute Tips, a podcast for the behavioral health workforce.